We are continuing this morning our series uh, through Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our series is entitled, Dare to be Different. And just as a reminder, we've looked at several different uh, aspects of how we live lives differently, how we are not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind already in our series. So I, I've dared you, Harvest Decatur, over the last few weeks to be kingdom-minded. I've dared you as well to be truthful. I've dared you as well to be loving. I dared you a couple weeks ago to be identified with Christ. And last week, Paul Roberts dared you to value brokenness. So I'm going to dare you to do something else today. Harvest Decatur, this morning, I dare you to be... I've had trouble with this one this last week, okay? Can I admit that? Can I just let you into my mind a little bit this morning? It's kind of a scary place. I've been thinking through some things in our country and in our world for a while, and it's kind of made me crazy, all the things that are going on. And so I've been trying to take all that this week and synthesize it down to one succinct statement, to synthesize it even down to one word. And it's been a struggle trying to figure out, like, what is that thing, what is that adjective, what is that word that I desire for our church, for myself, in light of Romans 12, 22, being different from the world? It came to me as I was thinking this through on Thursday afternoon at about 3.30 p.m. I dare you, Harvest Decatur. I dare you to be convictional. Convictional. Now, I, I can cover a lot of stuff under that umbrella. Convictional. I dare you to be convictional. And we're going to cover a lot of stuff today. We are. So, you know, cancel your lunch plans. Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> and then we're going to take communion. Here's what I want to cover today. I want to cover abortion, euthanasia, gender, sex, gender dysphoria, sexuality, marriage, racism, the sanctity of human life, and Jesus Christ is the only remedy for human sinfulness. Everybody ready? Here we go. Write this down as number one in your notes. I want to give you this morning, Harvest Decatur, five biblical Christians that every, biblical convictions, excuse me, that every Christian should have. Five biblical convictions I dare you to be convictional. Five biblical convictions that every Christian should have. Here's the first. Human life from the womb to the grave is sacred. Human life <clears throat> from the womb to the grave is sacred. Let me state for the record right now, I've said it before, but let me say it again. I am convictionally and unabashedly pro-life from the cradle to the grave, from the womb to the grave. What happens to preborn babies in this country at Planned Parenthood centers and elsewhere is an abomination before God. It is morally repugnant. 
And it's an affront to the God of the universe. And before anybody says, even at home right now, if you're watching, well, that's a political issue. You can't get political, Pastor. It is not a political issue. It's a pre-political issue. It is a moral issue. It's a biblical issue. And the Bible gives no warrant at all for abortion, period. The Bible says, thou shalt not murder. Exodus 20, verse 13. The Bible says, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. The Bible says in Job 31, verse 15, did not he who made me in the womb make him and did not one fashion us in the womb? Isaiah 44, verse 2 says, Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Jeremiah 1, verse 5, Yahweh tells Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Psalm 139, verse 13 says this. This is David writing. For you formed my inward parts, says David. Literally in, Hebrews, in, in Hebrew, it's my kidneys. You formed my kidneys. And that's a, that's a representation there of our physical and metaphysical properties. You made my soul, you made my body in the womb. You knitted me together in my mother's womb, says David. And that word knitted, I've said these things before. Some things bear repeating. They just do. That word knitted there could be translated intertwined or plated. God wove us together in our mother's womb. He plated us. He embroidered us like a quilt. He did that. And when you just stop and think about the human body and the marvel of it and all of its pieces, all of its constituent parts, it is amazing. What God constructs in the womb, all of this, the, the, you know, the, the skeletal system and the circulatory system and the, the nervous system, there are in your body right now 60,000 miles of track that God has laid for your circulatory system. Did you know that? 60,000 miles of caterpillars, uh, caterpillars, capillaries and arteries and veins. God laid that track. God put that together in your mother's womb. And yet an untrained, unlicensed abortionist pretending to be a healthcare professional can come and vacuum a human being out of a womb and dispose of it like medical waste. That is a tragedy. I've heard Christians even... Sometimes well-meaning Christians refuse to take a stand on abortion. And they, they say things like, well, it's complicated. It's complicated. It's not complicated. There are some things in life that are complicated, that need nuance. This is not one of those. Abortion is the murder of a pre-born child made in the image of God. Dare to be convictional about that harvesticator. Dare to take a stand on that. The next time somebody asks you, what's your view on abortion? Here's, here's what I encourage you to do in light of being convictional. Pull your shoulders back, look them directly in the eye, and say, abortion is the murder of a preborn person made in the image of God. 
That's what we say. That's the truth. You don't have to holler. You don't have to scream. You don't have to lose your temper. I wouldn't blame you if you did. But you're going to be more persuasive. You're going to be more effective. If you look somebody in the eye and you tell them the truth about this, abortion is the murder of a preborn person made in the image of God. It's a sin. It's not an unforgivable sin, but it's a sin. And we need to take a stand against it. Let's transition from the beginning of life to the end of life, because I think that's an issue right now, too. There's another threat to human sanctity in our world right now. It's called euthanasia. Not only is abortion a sin, euthanasia is a sin. Sometimes it's referred to as physician-assisted suicide. Maybe you've heard this. And and let me just say for the record that physician-assisted suicide is an oxymoron. Physicians are called to do no harm. It's the Hippocratic Oath. They make that oath before the world, and yet with physician-assisted suicide, they conspire with the patient to kill them. How is that doing no harm? That is a sin, and we need to take a stand against that. Life is given by God, and it's taken by God. And we are in no position as human beings to take our own lives by suicide or help another person take his or her life. And I think arguments for assisted suicide are very dangerous in our world right now, and somebody needs to take a stand. I did a count of this this last week. Right now there are nine states, by my last count, that actually have physician-assisted suicide as legally viable. California, Colorado, Hawaii, Montana, Maine, New Jersey, Oregon, Vermont, and Washington. And, And this kind of legislation is circulating all the time in all the different states. And I mean, it's just a marvel to me. When I was a kid, Jack Kevorkian was a psycho and everybody thought he was a psycho. And now we just do what he does and we, we sanction it. How did that happen? When did we change our mind on that? How do we drift so far from what the Bible teaches about these things? And we use these terms, we use these infamisms, uh, like, you know, die with dignity and right to die, and physician-assisted suicide. These things are not right, and we need to take a convictional stand against them. And here's my fear. Here's why this is so important to get, get after this subject right now, because I think euthanasia is such a dangerous thing, because we, we'll move eventually from you know, voluntary euthanasia to involuntary euthanasia. And all of a sudden, you have doctors and you have family members who are deciding, you know, it's really time for this person to die. They're, they're, they're a drain on our resources. You don't think that's coming? It's coming. And, and who, who decides these things? Who, who, who determines, you know, we got, we got $28 trillion worth of debt as a country. All of a sudden we're like, you know what? Our country would be in better shape financially if we just let older people die, if we just take them out. Or think about the power that might be invested someday in children who want to expedite the inheritance that their parents is giving them by maybe encouraging them to take their own life or deciding for them that their life is over. I've told you all before about what happened in Iceland with with Down syndrome children. I've shared this before, and I just think this is so tragic. Here's this country, Iceland, that promotes before the world. We've dealt with Down syndrome. We found a cure for Down syndrome. We've, we've stopped it. They've you know how they stopped it? They aborted all of the children in their country who had a pre-born diagnosis of Down syndrome. Is that a cure? And sometimes that's not always accurate, by the way. Is that a cure? And in, in, in our country, another country just fought, oh, wow, they, they found a solution. That's great. Is that a solution? 
I don't think so. I think that's a tragedy. And my fear, even with America, as we fawn over these things and think highly of these things, is someday it'll be considered a healthcare cost savings to deal with people who have, you know, an aged problem. They're, they're too old. They're too much of a drain on our system who have maybe some kind of medical circumstance. And, you know, the right to die all of a sudden becomes a right to kill. We need to take a convictional stand on this. So when people ask you, Harvest Decatur, about euthanasia, when they ask you about physician-assisted suicide, I want you to pull your shoulders back. I want you to look people right in the eye and say euthanasia, physician-assisted suicide, is the murder of a person who is made in the image of God. It's not right. And I won't be coerced into believing that it's the right thing. I refuse to condone it, to lie about it, or to obscure the truth about it. Dare to be convictional about it. Write this down as number two in your notes. Here's another thing I dare you to be convictional about. Gender is binary. Gender is binary. I wrote something about this this last week because I, I think this topic just needs precision and it needs clarity. And I... I I just wrote out my thoughts on this. And I, I want to read it for you just so that I can be careful in the way that I talk about this topic. You can read this on the screen. Those of you at home, you can read this on your screen. Transgenderism is a confused ideology that asserts that the God-given genders of male and female are unfixed or fluid. The church should not teach, embrace, or endorse this false teaching. God created human beings, both male and female. Gender is binary. Both genders are afforded dignity by their creator. Men and women are heirs of the grace of life, and saved men and women are equal inheritors of Christ's eternal kingdom. Those who struggle with gender dysphoria are made in the image of God. And should be treated with love and respect by the church. But the church should not accommodate false unbiblical notions. The church and her people should not live by lies. Those who are intersex, this is the term that was traditionally used for hermaphrodites. Those who are intersex are made in the image of God and should be treated with dignity and respect. Counsel should be sought medically and spiritually to determine how to live their lives appropriately in light of their gender ambiguity. You know, it's amazing to me how how many of these issues, these just kind of basic issues, are really an attack on the book of Genesis, on just what God tells us in the very first book. If we just read and we just believed the book of Genesis, we wouldn't struggle with so much confusion about these matters. And it's almost like in our world right now, people have just followed right after the pattern of Adam and Eve. And, and believing the lies of the enemy. You know, did, did God really create gender? No, come on. Oh, I guess I can just make it up. Did God really say men are made in the image of God? Come on. Men are pigs or boys or rats. We're all the same. And we just, we just buy into these ideas and we just dismiss what God has clearly told us in the book of Genesis. Let's go to the book of Genesis. 
Let's see what God says about these things. Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our own image, different from the other animals in the animal kingdom. After our likeness, says God, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. You should probably go ahead and just memorize that verse and have it on the tip of your tongue whenever people ask you about these subjects. Man was made in God's image. Man didn't evolve from primordial goo. Man did not evolve from apes or amoebae. He was differentiated from the animal kingdom. And he was called to rule over the animal kingdom. And God created two genders, male and female, and he called it good. And it is good. It is good. And to that you might say, well, why is it good? What, what good was, came about by gender, different genders, Pastor Tony? Well, let me state the obvious here. I know we've got some young listeners here, so I'll try to speak in biology terms. The male provides the sperm that fertilizes the egg. The female provides the egg that is fertilized. Sperm can't fertilize sperm. And eggs can't fertilize themselves. And, and this is true even in the animal kingdom. By the way, God created male and female with the animal kingdom before he created male and female humans. But with humans, he, he endorsed monogamy. And these commitments, these, this covenant relationship, that you don't find that in the animal kingdom. Not, if you do, it's negligible. It's so rare, it's negligible. But for humans, God created human beings to have monogamous, heterosexual, marital relationships. Why? Why did he do that? Why did God give us marriage? Why did God create marriage? Well, God tells us in Genesis 1.28, God blessed them, these men and women that were made in his image, Adam and Eve first. He blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, this is what's called the Genesis mandate. Can I tell you in basic terminology what God told Adam and Eve to do? Make babies. Make some babies. Fill this world with little image bearers like yourself and populate the earth and, and have dominion over the earth. And I know I'm stating a lot of obvious things here, but let me state another obvious thing. Another obvious thing. That's not possible in a same-sex union. It's just not. Not without some really creative biological maneuvering. Gender is binary. Marriage was created by God as a lifelong monogamous heterosexual covenant relationship. People ask you about this, look them in the eye and tell them. Gender is binary. Marriage was created by God as a lifelong monogamous heterosexual covenant relationship. Now, some of you are saying right now, and I mean, this is pretty intense. You might say, Pastor Tony, if we say these things, you know what people are going to do if we say these, if we believe these things? People are going to cancel us, Pastor Tony. You know what big tech does to people who say stuff like this? 
Do you know what's going to happen to us in our, in, our, in our workplaces, in our homes, with our families who are unbelievers? People, people are going to oppose us. Yes, they will. And Jesus makes no bones about that. Jesus said this in John 15. You can read this on the screen. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Do not be transformed. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed, right? But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If you persecute me, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. John 16, 33. In this world, you will have trouble. But Jesus also said this. And aren't you glad Jesus said this? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are you if you're persecuted. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Listen, I've said this before. Let me say it again. The road to irrelevance is paved with compromise and with cowardice. The road to irrelevance, the road to blessing according to Jesus is paved with courage and conviction. I dare you to be convictional about these things. I would rather be unpopular by this world's standard than be irrelevant. I'd rather be blessed by God than be applauded by this world. And I think we get this wrong in America, and this is why this is really important in the context of our church, because sometimes when we face opposition or when we go through hard times, you know, we in the church even, we have this kind of prosperity gospel mentality like, oh, you're going through a hard time? Getting persecuted? You must have done something wrong. You know, because of course God wants us to be healthy and happy and everybody's going to like us. And if that's not happened, you must have angered God with something you did. You must have, you know, got out in front of yourself or offended somebody. And that is just, that is just not what the Bible teaches at all. If we're going to be associated with Jesus, and I want to be associated with Jesus, don't you? You're going to face opposition. You're going to be persecuted. Jesus said it. Blessed are those who persecute you for righteousness' sake. Blessed are not those who persecute. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of God. That doesn't give you a blank check, Harvest Decatur, to go be obnoxious in order to be persecuted, okay? There's some persecution that comes because we're just obnoxious. But I will say this, if you're never persecuted in this world, it might just be because you never take a stand for anything. You're never convictional about anything. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, if you're always being persecuted, you're probably an obnoxious person. But if you're never being persecuted, you're probably a coward. If you're always being persecuted, you're probably obnoxious because Jesus wasn't always persecuted. But if you're never being persecuted, you're probably a coward because Jesus was persecuted and we're associated with him. Don't you see that Christians, just by living a godly life, are going to upset people? 
Why was Jesus hated, by the way? Do you ever stop and just think, why did they hate Jesus? Was it because he healed people who were suffering? Is that why he was hated? Is it because he preached these amazing sermons that everybody was enthralled by? Was it because he lived this perfect and righteous life? You know, Jesus never picked up a sword. He never killed anybody. He never led an army. He never did a sinful thing against anybody. Why did people hate him? He lived a perfectly righteous life. You know why people hated him? You know why people hated him? Because he lived a perfectly righteous life. Because they didn't like that. And Jesus says, Jesus says to his disciples, you're going to follow me? You're going to be with me? You're going to get what I got. Don't be surprised if they hate you because you're different. You're not from this world. You don't belong here. You're a nation of Abel's living among a nation of Cain's. So don't be surprised when the Cain's rise up against you and persecute you and do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I know this is really hard for us. I like to be liked. Even on Facebook, I like being liked. I don't like being disliked, and I know you don't either. And this is hard stuff. This is a hard pill for us to swallow. But we are called to bear our cross as Christians, to come and follow Jesus. And let's face it, if some people didn't like Jesus because of what he stood for, they're not going to like us either if we're associated with him. Dare to be different, harvesticator. Dare to be convictional. Don't be bullied in this world into silence. Don't be bullied into silence by big tech and big media and people who think that you should be canceled. If we get canceled, so be it. But this world needs the truth. It needs conviction. And we have the truth God has given to us to speak to others. Go ahead and write this down as number three in your notes. Here's the third biblical conviction every Christian should have. I've alluded to this already. Let me just spell it out more precisely. Marriage is primarily for baby making. And babies are good. You know what my favorite Super Bowl commercial was? It was that Pampers commercial with all the babies. That was fantastic. Babies are good. You guys are doing good, Harvest Decatur, with this, by the way. I know this is red meat for this crowd. But let me just tell you why this is really important and why we need to emphasize this as convictional. I, I've heard in several podcasts recently, John Stone Street, he's the, the president of the Colson Center, and he talks on the world and everything in it, and he's got his own podcast. And I, I hear him say several times, speak about what he calls America's great, marriage divorce and he doesn't mean what you think he means by that what he's talking about is how many americans especially young people have tried to divorce marriage from procreation like they're two different things and you can have marriage without procreation you can have procreation without marriage as if you know you can just pick and choose one or both of those things and here's what stone street says about it he says the distinctive of marriage is its inherent connection with procreation. 
The fundamental divorce of the sexual revolution has been the divorce of procreation and marriage. And when you do that, then you redefine marriage and you get things like same-sex marriage because procreation is no longer an important thing anymore. Stone Street says this, he says, we fundamentally misunderstood marriage and family as a society. And that fundamental understanding, misunderstanding, has come into the church. So what you hear is, for example, marriage talked about in all kinds of functional, practical ways. We have marriage seminars on how to have marriage, how to do marriage, how to do marriage better, how to love your spouse, how to have better finances and a better sex life and everything else. And what's been missing is a fundamental teaching, a catechism on what marriage itself is. So the culture has been defining marriage. So most evangelical people in the pews often think of marriage in the same way that the culture does, that it's an institution of adult happiness, that it's completely untethered from anything like baby making. My word, not his. Procreation. I'll be honest with you, because I listen to these podcasts a lot. Those of you who know me know I listen to this. And whenever I hear John Stone Street talk about this and, and chide pastors and churches for not teaching the truths about marriage and sex, whenever I hear him do that, I'll tell you what I say. I say, doggone it, Stone Street. That ain't happening in my church. I'm not going to let that happen in my church. I'm going to teach the truth about these things. I should write him and tell him that. Doggone it, Stone Street. Come and see what's happening here. I love John Stone Street, by the way. So uh, let's teach it. I'm going to teach it and keep teaching it. Gender is binary. God created us male and female, but also, this is important, gender is complementary. Okay? We are more like each other, male and female, than we are like animals or we are like angels. We are all homo sapiens. We are all made in the image of God. But let me just give you a brilliant insight. Men and women are different. Did you know that? We're different and that's good. That's part of God's purpose. We have different roles in the human project and it's complementary what we do. The female brings the egg to the reproductive task. The male brings the sperm to fertilize the egg, and that's good. We need each other to procreate. We're not like starfish, just cut myself in half and then, you know, procreate. We don't do that, and I'm glad we don't do that. God has brought men and women together, a husband and a wife, for thousands of years in marriage in order to make babies. Now, I hear, me on the, hear my heart in this, okay? I know I'm walking a tightrope right here. Just give me a little bit of latitude as I'm trying to explain why this is so important. Marriage is not only about procreation. Everybody hear me on that? It's not only about that. But it needs to be primarily about that. And I, I think this is important because Well, first of all, it's biblical. When God created marriage and when God gave Eve to Adam as a wife, what's the first thing that he told them to do? What's the first thing he told them? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Make babies. And one of the great mistakes of the modern world, I think, has been the removal of sex from the marriage commitment. So, and this has caused incalculable harm to our society. 
And I think the church has reacted to this by trying to sell the world on marriage. Marriage is good. You know, marriage will make you happy. Marriage will make you, make you fulfilled. And, and marriage will make you less lonely. And marriage is better than not being married. So, so get married. And I mean, there's, there's some truth to all of those statements. But marriage is primarily God's mechanism for populating the world with more and more image-bearing babies. And that's good. I think the modern-day world demonstrates an antipathy towards marriage as the proper avenue for sexual intimacy. I think the modern-day world also demonstrates an antipathy towards large families and more generally towards children. I see that. I have this missionary friend who, he was, another, he was in another foreign country when his second child was born. I won't tell you which country it was. And there were some complications with his second child. And when his wife gave birth to this, to their child, the doctors who helped deliver the child automatically started to perform tubal ligation on his wife. And he, he caught on to what they were doing. He's like, what are you doing? Why are you tying my wife's tubes? And the doctor said, well, you already have two children. Nobody in this country would ever want more than two children. So we just figured you'd want her tubes tied. And he said, no, thank you. We, no, we're not done yet. As if, you know, who could, who could ever have more than two children? That's crazy. Similarly, I heard, I heard Prince Harry say this once. Is he still a prince? I don't know. Prince Harry. When he had his son, he, he did this interview and he said, he and his wife are only going to have two children max. No more than that. No, and it's almost like immoral to think you could have more than two children. Here's what he said. You can read this on the screen. He said, we're the only species on this planet that seems to think that this place belongs to us. As if God gave us dominion over it. <laughs> and only us, surely being as intelligent as we are, and as evolved as we are supposed to be, we should be able to leave something better behind for the next generation. I'll just tell you, that ridiculous sentiment is not uncommon in our day. I hear celebrities all the time talking about how it's immoral for people to have more than one or two children. Here's my counter to that, okay? I read an article by Kevin DeYoung just a few months ago. It's, it was entitled, It's Time for a New Culture War Strategy for Christians. And here's DeYoung's strategy. He encouraged Christians to engage in the culture war by gasp, having more babies. Here's what he said. Here's a culture war strategy conservative Christians should get behind. Have more children and disciple them like crazy. You want to rebel against the status quo? Yeah! You want people to ask you for a reason for the hope that you have in you? Yeah! Tote your brood of children through Target. <laughs> There's almost nothing more countercultural than having more children. And they says this, and once we have those children... There's almost nothing more important than catechizing them in the faith. Amen to that. Developing their moral framework. Preparing them to be deeply compassionate lovers of God and lovers of people and relentless biblical lovers of truth. The future belongs to the fecund, he says. From what, you know, from what I've heard, Kevin DeYoung actually got into a lot of trouble, some hot water with that article. As far as I'm concerned, I'm all for it. Forget what Prince Harry has to say. I don't care anyway. 
And and I've said this before, let me just say it again here at Harvest Decatur, we are raising up an army of Jesus followers. God, give us more. God, give us more. We don't take our cues from the world. We take our cues from the Bible. We take our cues from Jesus. Jesus says, let the little children come to me. And then he said, to such as these belong the kingdom of heaven. Now, I need to clarify something, and let me just do that before I move on to my fourth point. Marriage is not only about procreation. And marriages that don't procreate are not invalidated if they don't produce offspring. They are not. Sonia and I have dealt with infertility issues. Others have as well. Other people get married beyond the years of childbearing. And that doesn't invalidate their marriage or make it unbiblical in any way. My pastor used to, when I was little, my pastor used to tell this story about his mom, who after his dad died, his mom remarried to another man, and they were both in their 80s. And it was, he would just talk about it in such wonderful, it was a beautiful thing. It was such a God-honoring thing that these two individuals, his mom, one of them, found love and companionship and marriage at that stage of life. And there was no possibility biologically at all of childbearing. I mean, Abraham and Sarah, that's a one-time deal. You get that, right? And yet God still smiled on that. And God still looked favorably on that. Marriage is not only about procreation. We see that even in Genesis 2, where one of the reasons that God gave Eve to Adam was because it's not good for man to be alone. It's the only, you know, it's, I've said this before, you know, in Genesis 1 and 2, it's like, good, 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 everything's good, and then all of a sudden it's like, not good, not good, what's not good? It's not good for man to be alone. So God gave Eve to Adam. But procreation has to be primary as a purpose in marriage, and I don't, I don't think we should downplay that in this world. If anything goes, I mean, marriage for some people now, especially in the same-sex marriage world, it's like, well, if you love somebody, you should be able to marry them. What's the big deal? No, there's, there's, there's intentionality behind what God has created, and we need to follow that. And by the way, let me just say this thing, this as well about, we're talking about gender, we're talking about marriage. Women of Harvest Decatur, be proud to be a woman. God has blessed you with womanhood. You're the only people in the world that can be mothers, that can mother children. Praise God for that. Fathers can't do that. Women should be proud to be women, and men should be proud to be men. And women shouldn't want to be men, and men shouldn't want to be women. Men shouldn't envy women, and women shouldn't envy men. We should... Praise God for who he made us to be and thank the Lord that we have this commonality of being made in the image of God and yet we're still different. And I I see in our world right now this antipathy that's growing between men and women. You know, there's, I was reading in the book, The Madness of Crowds, that one of the most popular tweets on Twitter, Twitter in the last few years is hashtag all men are trash. And also, hashtag kill all men. These are the hashtag, these are the Twitter feeds that Twitter doesn't block. And, and I just think as I see those things and see that in tip, is that the way forward? Is that helpful for our society? No. Men should affirm women and women should affirm men. And we should praise God for the way that he has made us. 
And we can do that without buying into the notion that gender is a social construct or that gender is non-binary. Gender is not a social construct. Go ahead and write this down. I need to move a little quicker here. Number four, all human beings are equal in dignity and worth. Everybody still with me? Can I get an amen on that fourth statement? All human beings are created equal in dignity and worth. That is not a declaration of independence thing. That is a biblical thing. Thomas Jefferson wasn't perfect, but he derived that from his understanding of Scripture. And he put that right into one of our founding documents. It's the logical outworking of Imago Dei in the book of Genesis. Racism is a sin, people. Racism is unbiblical. But can I say this as well? Racism is nonsensical, biblically speaking. I mean, there's all this talk about, you know, gender being a social construct, gender being a social construct. It's not a social construct. You know what a social construct is? Racism. The idea that you are ethnically superior than some other person, that is a social construct. Because you come from the same root. You come from the same source. Adam and Eve, Noah and his three sons. So racism is cutting off your nose to spite your face. I know I get really passionate about this stuff because here's why I'm passionate about this. We as Christians have the best source for understanding our our commonality as human beings. Better than every other ancient written work or certainly some of the the modern day philosophies that seep into our, our, our culture. We as Christians have the best resources for believing and applying this. Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, was an atheist and a racist. Do y'all know that? And her whole program involved birth control, sterilization, even abortion later. Her goal was to eliminate weaker and lesser evolved racial groups. And the entire eugenics program that was prevalent, even in this country, was very much a racist enterprise. It wasn't just Hitler who saw the Aryan race as superior to other racial and ethnic groups. Many intellectuals, even in this country, bought into that, this idea of eugenics, and they just didn't take it to the the logical bloody extreme of Hitler. And a lot of this derives from just a a basic Darwinian worldview. Race-based eugenics is essentially the outworking of Darwinian evolution. If you believe in Darwinian evolution, that the strong eat the weak, Natural selection. Why would you believe that the stronger, whatever those are, the stronger members of our species should dominate or destroy the weaker ones? Darwin wrote this. You can read this on the screen. At some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man, I don't know who he's talking about there, probably European peoples, The civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races throughout the world. That's the logical end result of of a Darwinian worldview. Racism and eugenics are implicitly part of that Darwinian worldview. Some of you might be asked, well, what's eugenics, Pastor Sonny? What are you talking about? Eugenics is the belief that some human beings are more worthy of life than others. 
Merriam-Webster calls eugenics this, the practice or advocacy of controlled selective breeding of human populations as by sterilization or other means to improve the population's gene pool. The word eugenics, eugenics was coined by Charles Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton. Etymologically, it means well-born. Eu means good in Greek, and genes or genes means born, so eugenics, well-born. You might say, who would ever believe that? Who would ever buy into that? Who would ever advocate for eugenics? You'd be surprised how many people even in this country supported these ideas. And you know what killed the eugenics movement? In our world, it didn't kill it, but made it less popular. It was a eugenicist in Germany named Adolf Hitler who thought that the Aryan race was greater than the other races, and he was going to kill off or enslave all the other races of the world to be submissive to the Aryan race, and so he killed six million Jews, as well as gypsies and handicapped people and other people that he saw as inferior. And that was way more prevalent as a mentality around the world than some people like to admit. It wasn't just Hitler. And I will say this too, the eugenics movement, as far as I'm concerned, is not dead. It's just morphed into other things. The culture of death, physician-assisted suicide, euthanasia, abortion, other things like this. Here's what I'm going for. Here's what I'm trying to get at. Racism and even class warfare is the inevitable result of a Darwinian worldview. And, and so what we have now, too, is not just that. That's kind of in the background of the way people think. But we've also kind of throw in a little Marxism. We throw in a little Freudian views about sex. And then all of a sudden we have this violent and volatile cocktail. And it's explosive. And it's, it's happening in our world right now. There's got to be a better way than that. There's got to be a better way to understand who we are as human beings and how to understand race. I'll tell you where that better way is found. It's found in the Bible. It's found in the God of the universe who created all of us in the image of God. And we all derive our essence, our being from the same source, both, both physically and metaphysically. We're the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And we are made in the image of God. You know where I learned this stuff? I didn't learn this stuff in science class when I was a kid. I learned it at church where we sang red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. I learned that song before I could even talk. And that song is right. And that song is biblical. And even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul said, when he was in Athens, the Lord made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. I think that's the way forward for race relations and racial strife in our world, in our country right now. And here's another reason I'm so, comp so passionate about this right now. I don't want you and I don't want to be silent on these matters, canceled, thinking, worried about that, or bullied into silence. Can I just let you all in on something? Christianity has always been a vocal religion. 
Christianity has always been a proselytizing religion. Christians have always been vocal. They've never been silent. When the Romans were killing people in the gladiator games, hundreds of years ago, the Christians stood up and said, that's not right. We need to stop that. When the slave trade was going on in Britain and other places, it was Christians like William Wilberforce who said, stop it. That's not right. And fought to make that wrong. It was Christians in this country when Jim Crow laws were enforced, people like Martin Luther King Jr. who stood up and said, that's not right, that's not biblical. And I refuse to be silent about these things that are hurting our country and our world right now. I will say this, I feel like I need to say this as a Christian pastor, we haven't always been right as Christians when we speak out vocally. I admit that, even pastors make mistakes but we have never been silent God has called us to have a prophetic voice in these matters and I want to be as a follower of Jesus I want to be a brave courageous convictional person that speaks the truth about these things be convictional harvesticator. The world needs to hear the truth about these things. I dare you to be convictional. One more thing, finally, fifthly. Let's just prepare our hearts for communion as we cover this last point. If you've already forgotten everything that I've said today, can you just hear me on this? If you checked out at point number two when I was talking about Darwinism and Marxism, what point was that? Point number four. Just check back in, okay? Because this, this is the most important thing we need to be convictional about. Jesus provides the only remedy for human sin. Let me be clear about this. Abortion is not an unforgivable sin. Abortionists are not unforgivable. Sex outside of marriage is not an unforgivable sin. Murder is not an unforgivable sin. Homosexuality is not an unforgivable sin. Racism is not an unforgivable sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. And as Christians, we can never forget any of the good things that God has given us. And we realize that any, any good thing, any hope that we have comes from God who has been gracious and forgiving to us. So if someone comes up to you and says, oh, well, you're a Christian, you're a Christian. How do you go to that church harvest decatur with that crazy pastor who's always getting all amped up? What's your hope for the future? What hope do you have? I mean, this world's messed up. What, what hope do Christians have? Why are you different than everybody else? What, what do you expect after death? Here's what you do with conviction. 
and with confidence, you pull your shoulders back, look them right in the face, and you tell them that Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, came to this world and died on a cross for my sin. And he rose from the dead. And you can have your sins forgiven as well. The Bible says if you confess Jesus as the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You might be the person that helps lead a person to salvation and saves their soul. So look at them and speak with conviction and clarity, compelled by the Holy Spirit. And say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you may be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you can be saved. Y'all believe that? It's the only hope for our world. It's the only hope for our world. Let's pray. Then we can take communion together. Lord, I thank you for the great clarity that you have given us on these issues. And I thank you, Lord, that you have shown us the way how to speak with grace and truth, how to love people, but also be absolutely convictional about truth. And Lord, I as a pastor and we as a church, we want to be like Jesus. We want to be like you. Help us to do that, I pray. Lord, give us courage as a church. Give us confidence. Give us conviction. Fill us up with the joy of the Lord even as we express these things to others. God, give us a love for lost people. Not an anger towards their behavior or their sinfulness that would consume us, but a love for them like you loved us in our lost sinful state. And may our pursuit of the truth, may our speaking the truth to others be an expression of our love for them. Lord, Jesus, we remember you now. We remember you. Your death paid for our sin. And this bread that we're going to eat reminds us of your body broken on that cross. And the cup reminds us of your blood shed on our behalf. Jesus, we remember you now. We worship you. Receive this act of worship, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.